things down. Um, I hope you guys fared well through the tropical storm we had, a lot of rain over the last couple days, but it is a beautiful day this morning, and I'm really excited to have the opportunity to be in front of you guys to share with you a little bit about um, what God has really spoken to my heart through the, on the book of Judges. I love the book of Judges. Um, ooh, we're good? Okay. So I love the book of Judges. It's one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. And I'd like to tell you that, you good? Okay. I'd like to tell you that my primary reason for loving the book of Judges is because it's got these great deep theological truths. And it does. It's got a lot of great teachings in it. And we're going to talk about that this morning. But I'm going to be honest with you guys. One of my reasons I love the book of Judges is because of the crazy and unbelievable stories that are in it. There's a lot of weird stories in the book of Judges that make you go, wow, I can't believe this is in the Bible. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that, that this morning. And so that's why I really enjoy it. But I also enjoy it because uh, the book of Judges is really interesting in that God uses these judges. They're all very different people. And it kind of shows how God is able to use people in different ways to accomplish great things. So each of these judges um, is able to accomplish these unusual or spectacular feats or accomplishments that uh, just shows God's ability to use people in a unique way. The other thing is, is there's a lot that we ourselves can learn um, about ourselves through the book of Judges. So we're going to jump right in this morning. And uh, I'm going to start off just kind of reviewing what Mike introduced last week. Hey, Mike, I'm getting a bunch of feedback. Are you guys maybe turn it down just a little bit? Okay. Um, oh, that, well, yeah. So sorry about that, guys. So I want to go over the cycle, the cycle that, that he introduced. And oh, this, that's it right there. There's the cycle. Now, it's really important that we kind of understand the cycle. If you go look at Judges chapter 2, verses 16 uh, through 23, it kind of gives you a summary of the cycle that Israel goes through seven times, okay? They do this seven different times, okay? And the cycle pretty much goes like this. Israel commits sin. Now, pretty much the sin is a very specific sin. Um, most of the verses will say, once again, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? And usually what it's about is they're worshiping other gods. So they're worshiping the Baals and Ashtoreths, the, the gods of the pagan cultures around them. And so Israel starts worshiping other gods, commits this sin. God gets frustrated with them and then allows them to be oppressed by their enemies. Okay, God says, okay, you're not going to follow me. Then I'm going to send your enemies to, to kind of rule over you and to oppress you so they can realize there's a consequence for not choosing to follow me. Then what happens is Israel eventually, after years of oppression, repents. They cry out to God and say, hey, God, please deliver us. We, we, we need help in this situation. We're sorry for what we've done. We need to come back to you. Help us. God hears them, and he brings a judge to deliver them from the, the oppression of their enemies. Now, Mike mentioned last week that these judges don't have gavels in their hands, okay? They're not somebody sitting over a courtroom proceeding and trying to decide who's going to win the lawsuit. These judges are military leaders. They are men that God raises up to go help rescue Israel from their enemies, but then after their enemies are defeated, kind of serves as the person between God and Israel to help them learn how to follow and live the way God wants them to, 
okay? So that's what these judges are. Mike mentioned last week the type of government that Israel had. What kind of government is that? Do you guys know? Luke, do you remember? Theocracy, right? Good. So theocracy. Theocracy basically means that God's in charge. There's no king. There's no emperor. There's no ruling council. God is in charge, and everybody follows God and does what God says. The judge just is the person that God used to help Israel know what to do and how to follow him. Okay, So they send the judge to deliver Israel from um, their enemies, and then as long as the judge is alive, Israel follows God faithfully. Okay, And they do a really good job. And then the minute the judge dies, though, they go right back to their old ways, and then they commit sin again, worshiping other gods, other gods, and they go through the cycle over and over again. Now, this idea, this cycle in Judges is actually probably the most important thing to understand from the book of Judges, okay? It's got the greatest practical application for us, and so what I get to do this morning is I get to introduce you guys to the first three Judges, okay? The three that you've probably never heard of before, okay? Everybody has heard of Gideon and Samson usually. Some people are familiar with Deborah, but these three guys you've probably never heard of before, okay? Some of you may have, but they're not the most popular ones. And what I want to do is I want to use these first three to show you the evidence that of this cycle in the book of Judges, because we really do need to understand this cycle. Um, so the, what I've done is I, I, these first three, I usually give these little title names to each of these judges. Um, because like I mentioned before, they all kind of have some very unique abilities or God uses them in different ways. And so I kind of use a little title to kind of help me remember who they are. Um, and so the first thing we're going to do is uh, we're going to talk about the first judge, Othniel. Okay. He's the first judge, judge chapter three, verses seven through 11. Othniel actually, we've heard of one other time. Okay, um, Mike kind of glossed over it last week. In chapter 1, Othniel is mentioned, okay? It says, Othniel is the younger brother of Caleb. Does anybody remember who Caleb is? <laughs> Mike does. Anybody else? Okay, let's do this. You guys remember when Moses and the Israelites, they were in the wilderness. And before they go to the promised land, they, go, they send 12 spies into the land, Okay. What happens with the 12 spies? Does anybody remember? They're giants. Yeah, that's right. There's giants. How many of them gave a bad report and says there were giants and there was a problem with the land? 10. That's right, 10. So there were 10 of the 12 spies said, hey, you know what? Yes, just like God said, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. There's all these great resources. It's a beautiful land, but there's these giants in the land. They got these heavily walled cities. We can't defeat them. We just need to stay where we're at, right? But then there were two. There were two that said, you know what? Yeah, there's those giants in the land, but this, the resources, this is a beautiful land. It's a wonderful land. God says, we're going to take this land. Let's do what God said. We can take these guys, okay? There was two guys that said that. You remember who those two were? One was Joshua, and the other one was Caleb, okay? So this is Caleb's younger brother, okay? And we actually see he was just mentioned temporarily in chapter 1, and basically Caleb says, hey, I need somebody to go take 
the, run the, uh, the Canaanites out of the city of Debir. I need somebody to go raise them up and get them out of there. And if they do, I'll give them my daughter's hand in marriage. So Caleb's younger brother, which that's kind of weird, okay? We won't talk about that too much. About, was that, I mean, his daughter and then his younger brother. It's, anyway, so, but Othniel raises up an army, goes, pushes the Canaanites out very successfully, okay? So he's kind of got some pretty impressive military prowess. And so here's what happens with Othniel, okay? Israel starts following the Baals and the Asherahs. They start worshiping other gods, okay? And so God gets upset, gets angry, and he sends the king of Mesopotamia. You want to know what his name is? Kushan Rashathayim. Say that three times real fast. See, if you can say it one time real fast, that's impressive. Kushan Rashathayim, okay? God sends Kushan Rashathayim, this king of Mesopotamia, he sends him to take Israel over, and he basically oppresses Israel for eight years, okay? After eight years, the Israelites, just like the cycle says, they realize, man, we've not followed God. We've been oppressed by our enemies. Worshiping these other gods isn't helping us. Let's go back to God. God, we need your help. All right? So God says Othniel to go and rescue them from Kushan Rishathaim, from the Mesopotamians. Okay? And basically what happens is he, he, they had been oppressed for eight years. Okay? So the Mesopotamian military had control of everything. God sends Othniel. He just raises a bunch of people up and he just pushes them out just like it was nothing. Right? Once again, militarily pushes all of their enemies out once again. And it's like just because he stepped up to the plate, Israel was able to have victory where they weren't able to have victory before. Okay? So that's Othniel. He's the first judge. And the Bible says that after Othniel... Um, had been uh, had given them victory, they had rest in the land for 40 years. So what that means is, under Othniel's leadership for the next 40 years, Israel followed God, right? And they didn't have any problems with their enemies anymore until Othniel died, okay? The minute Othniel passes away, Israel goes, let's start worshiping other gods again. And they go right back to starting the cycle all over again, all right? So Israel starts worshiping these other gods, and um, God once again gets frustrated, and he says, okay, you know what? This time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send somebody else. I'm going to see Eglon. So he sends this uh, king of Eglon, who's uh, the king of Moab. Now, Moab is a country that you're going to hear about a lot. We've already heard about them some with Moses and the children of Israel coming through the wilderness. Moab is one of Israel's common enemies. And so Eglon takes Moab, his country, and he rallies up the Ammonites and the Amalekites, who are also very much the common enemies of Israel, raises them up together and takes Israel over. And Eglon rules over and oppresses Israel for 18 years. Okay? Rules over for 18 years. And finally, after 18 years, what happens? What does Israel do? The cycle. What happens? They repent. Right? They cry out to God. Very good. We're getting it. Okay? They cry out to God. And so God says, okay, fine. I'm going to send a judge to deliver them from the Moabites. Right? And so he sends Ehud. Isn't that a great name? Anybody going to name their kids that? Ehud. Right? I call Ehud the assassin. 
Okay, and you're going to find out why in just a minute. This is one of the stories that I find that's really cool. It's kind of grotesque, I'm going to be honest with you, but it's, it's interesting, okay? So one of the things that King Eglon of Moab did is he required tribute of Israel. Does anybody know what tribute is? What is a tribute? Basically, you give away a certain, it's almost like taxes. Yeah. Okay, he says it's almost like taxes, but more ceremonial. It's almost like taxes, except it's a whole lot more than just taxes. They, they, they require a lot of you, okay? So what will happen is usually a stronger nation enacts tribute on a weaker nation, and they say, you're going to pay us this much of your great resources. It's going to be silver, it's going to be gold, it's going to be grain, food, whatever that nation is good at whatever they have a lot of, you're going to give us a lot of it so we don't destroy you, okay? So for 18 years, Eglon required tribute from Israel. Well, Ehud apparently is the representative for Israel to provide the tribute, okay? So Ehud, in the 18th year, okay, God decides to use him to save Israel. He says, and it's really interesting, they describe him as left-handed. The Bible goes out of the way to say that Ehud is left-handed. And so he, what he does is he makes this short sword or, or a really large knife. It's a cubit in length. A cubit is 18 inches, so it's about this long. Okay? He makes this double-edged sword, and he straps it to his right thigh underneath his garments. Okay? Now, the reason they think that might be significant, and we don't really know for sure, of saying he's left-handed is... Most everybody, even today, is right-handed, right? Like if I, how many of you are left-handed? Okay, okay, very small minority, right? How many of you are right-handed then? Everybody else, right? That's like maybe you know, less than 10% left-handed, right? So it's not very common for somebody to be left-handed. And really, in the, in the Old Testament, it was the same way. So one of the reasons they think that they mention that in Scripture is that because with him being left-handed... Typically, when they pat you down, they would have checked for his right thigh. If you're right-handed, usually your sword is going to be on the right side. That's how you draw your weapon, okay? But he was left-handed, so he had it on his garment on the other side. I think he had it underneath on the inner thigh, to be perfectly honest with you. But either way, it, they think the significance of mentioning that is because maybe the, the Moabites wouldn't have checked for it, okay? So Ehud comes, he provides... And he brings a tribute. And when, when we're talking about tribute here, guys, we're not just talking a $100,000 check, right? We're talking about carts and lots of people and animals bringing all this tribute into the king, right? So they're meeting up in the king's chambers, and Ehud's bringing all this stuff in, and Ehud then dismisses all the Israelites that bring all the tribute, okay? And he goes, hey, King Eglon, I got a secret for you. And Eglon goes, silence, don't, don't say it. Let me get everybody out of here. I, I, need to, I need to hear what this guy has to say. So the king sends everybody else out of his chambers. So it's just him and Ehud, okay? Now, here's what's interesting about that. Technically, is Ehud an ally or an enemy? He's technically an enemy. But I guess he had been doing this for years. So 18 years they've been paying tribute. Maybe Ehud has been doing it for 18 years. So he kind of developed some kind of rapport with Eglon to where Eglon felt perfectly comfortable letting everybody else out and have just him and Ehud. And he thought Ehud had something very significant that he needed to know that he didn't want anybody else to find out. Okay? 
So he goes, okay, give it to me. What's the secret? And he goes, I've got a message from God. Draws the sword out, stabs the guy in the belly. Okay? Here's the thing. He doesn't just stab him in the belly. Your parents might get on me for describing this, but here's what happens. The thing about Eglon is he was extremely fat. Very fat, okay? The Bible says that when Ehud stabbed him, the entire sword, hilt and everything, went inside his belly. Okay? And then his bowels spilled out. Okay? Yes, that is in the Bible. Go read it. All right? Your parents would not let you watch it on TV, but you can read about it in your Bible. Okay? So, the, 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 his intestines fall out, and I guess he died at that point, right? He falls down, big fat king falls down. Ehud goes and locks the chamber door, basically sneaks out, probably goes out a window, leaves the town, and starts heading uh, to where the Israelites are, are, are mobilized, okay? Well, here's the thing about this. His servants are like, okay, I guess we should go check on him. It's been a while. They go to check on him. The doors are locked. And they go, oh, he must be relieving himself. That's what the Bible says. He must be either resting or using the bathroom. So they go, well, the door's locked. We're going to let him have his privacy. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. To the point, it says, to the point of embarrassment. They're like, okay, he's been in there for like hours. Like something's wrong. We need to go check on him. But why don't they want to go check on him? That's exactly right. I mean, how many of you have walked in on somebody using the bathroom? I have. It goes, ah, ah, boom. That's what happens, right? You scream. They scream. You're red. They're red. They want to stay in there. You want to walk away, right? That's completely embarrassing, right? But when it's the king, a tyrannical king, the last thing you want to do is walk in on him using the bathroom, Right? Because it's going to cost you your head. Okay. But eventually they just go, you know what? We got to check on him. It's been a long time. So they finally, they get a key. And man, I, whoever that guy was, was brave. I know he was doing this to unlock the door. Because he's like knocking, King Eglon, King Eglon. No response. He opens the door. King's dead on the floor. Okay. King's dead on the floor. Entrails are everywhere. Okay. And Ehud is nowhere to be seen. Okay, so what ends up happening is Ehud then runs, rallies the people of Israel, says, Eglon is dead, we're taking our nation back, and they rise up an army, and they fight the Moabites, and they kill 10,000 Moabites in one day, and the Moabites flee, okay? So after they are rescued by um, Ehud, what ends up happening is they have peace in the land for 80 years. They follow him for 80 years, Ehud. And then Ehud dies, and they go right back at it again. And that's when we get to the next one, Shamgar. And he, poor Shamgar, he's our next judge. He only gets one verse. He gets one verse. It says, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. That's all he gets. Ehud this kills the king in this really unique, amazing way. Othniel conquers them with a great military might, and Shamgar gets one vote, one verse. And that's a great name too, by the way. 
But here's, here's what we need to imply from this. Obviously, after Ehud, they started following, worshiping other gods again, and then God raises up the Philistines to, to rule over Israel, to oppress Israel. And Shemgar is the one that when Israel cries out to God, that God sends. Now, he does this differently than Ehud assassinates a king. Othniel raises a military and fights off the enemy. Ehud just goes and kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. That's an ox goad, guys. Anybody know what an ox goad is? It's, it's, a, it's actually a farming tool, okay? It either looks like that. Sometimes it also has a, a long spear point at the end of it. So there's a straight spear point and a hook. It could go either way. What they basically do with an ox, when they get it to go where it wants, they poke it and they hit it and they hook it and they do all this stuff with it to get it to do what they want it to do. So basically, this guy takes a farm tool and kills 600 Philistines, okay? That, now, I don't know if he just started running up and down the roads, killing every Philistine that was walking down the road. I don't know if he faced 600 at one time and killed them by himself. I don't really know. The Bible doesn't give us that much, but what it does make it clear is he killed them. It says he killed 600 with an ox goad. It didn't say he raised an army of guys with ox goads. He did. Okay. Again, God uses people differently to do some pretty incredible things. So I am imagining that the Philistines went, okay, if this one guy can kill 600 of us with a farm tool, we're done. And so the Philistines leave and, and they, they're out and then Shamgar leads Israel. Okay. That's the first three judges, guys, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar. Okay. Has anybody heard those names before today? Okay, good. Okay, okay, one of you. Okay, so some of you may have heard them, but it, it, they're very unfamiliar names. Here's the importance, though, that I want you to get from this, though, is to understand this cycle. Clearly, we can see now that this cycle of disobedience that might, it's not just something Mike came up with last week. It's a reality, right? They, Israel kind of goes through this thing time and time again. And so there's a couple things we need to ask ourselves about this. The three things that we can learn from this. The first thing is we need to understand is, how did Israel get to this point? How did Israel end up at this point? I actually uh, meant for those not to come all up at one time, but you read the book of Judges, and you may have even said this morning, okay, can't, why can't Israel get this right? Right? Like, okay, like, can't they just figure out, if, as long as they don't worship other gods, they were fine. They just follow God. That's all you got to do. Follow God. Quit making the mistake, same mistake over and over and over again. They do this seven times. Okay? And we read that and say, I just, I just don't understand. They, they, they must be numbskulls. They can't get it right. But isn't that what we do? Right? Don't we have all have certain areas in our life that we struggle with consistently living for God in those areas? It could be, um, there's all kinds of things. It could be your language. It could be the, the people you're spending time with. It can be pornography. Um, and so for, for some people, it's alcohol and drugs. And, and, and so you, you, you kind of, you know you're not supposed to do those things. And you kind of do good for a little while. And then you kind of fall back off the wagon. You go right back and forth to doing those things over and over again. So we need to be careful about being critical for, of Israel because we kind of do the same thing. 
But we need to know why they got to this point. Here's my two points up here. How did Israel get to this point? The first one is incomplete obedience of their forefathers. That's how they ended up here, right? When Joshua and the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, what were they supposed to do? What were they supposed to do? Yeah, say it out loud, Frank. Yeah, clear it out. They were supposed to, all the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, all of them, they were supposed to push them out of the land. In some cases, they were supposed to completely wipe them out, killing the men, women, children, and the livestock in certain cities. They were told specifically to do that. Now, Mike even mentioned last week, I don't know that God wanted them to kill every single one throughout the whole land. But what we do know is they wanted, at least one of them out completed. He did not want the Israelites to live among them. Why? Right. It would further their disobedience. That's right. It would further their disobedience. He knew that if those Canaanites were left to live among the people of Israel, Israel would be tempted to follow their gods. And that God was right. That's exactly what happened, right? So because the forefathers disobeyed God... They, the, these generations that came after them are facing the consequences of being challenged to worship these other gods. Something that I, I say a lot, and if, all three of my kids heard this, okay? Incomplete obedience is disobedience, okay? Incomplete obedience is disobedience. God doesn't grade you on a curve, right? You don't go, well, I got a 78 on this test, you know, at least I passed, right? God's like, you still missed, you know, 22, right? You still committed sin. If there's anything that we know we were supposed to do that God has told us to do, and we don't do it, even if we partially do it, we have been disobedient. And because of their disobedience initially, the subsequent generations were facing the challenges of the strength of the Canaanites and their pagan religion and their culture, right? The second thing is this, generational distance from the exodus and the conquest. Now, here's what I mean by that. We are now like, I don't know, I'm going to guess, four, five generations, maybe six possibly, from the exodus, okay, at some of the points here. You're at least one or two from the conquest of the Canaan itself. The further away you get from those events where Israel was able to, I mean, those people that went through that, right? They crossed the Red Sea. They saw the plagues in Egypt. They saw God miraculously feed them every single day with manna and quail. They also saw that God was able to deliver them in amazing ways when they went to go fight Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. They, those people that lived through that were on fire for God because they saw God do great and mighty things. But as you get further and further away from those even though those other generations after that believed in those events, they couldn't relate or connect with them as well. Let me, let me put it to you this way. I remember growing up hearing about the JFK assassination. Okay, My dad, I remember him telling me, he remembers where he was and what was going on when JFK was assassinated. Now, I'm the generation after my dad. I heard my dad talk about it, Right? I, used, I remember seeing anniversaries, the 30th anniversary of the JFK assassination. There'd be all these documentaries on TV. I've watched all the movies, 
right? I saw all the conspiracy theories. So I, had, I have a connection. I kind of grasped the significance of it, but I didn't experience it like my dad did, okay? My kids, I hope they know who JFK is, okay? They might know him as somebody they had to learn about in history and got tested on in civics that was assassinated, and that's it. They are more further away. From, they, they can't really connect with that whole event. So the further away you get from the actual experience, the more, the more difficult it is to relate. 9-11, all of you adults in the room, we all can remember. I know every single one of you remembers where you were and what was going on when 9-11 hit. To me, it's the, I had never experienced anything like that in our country, but the emotional challenges... I remember watching on television, they were saying the first tower, there had been an explosion, and I'm watching live on TV trying to figure out what's going on, and I physically watch in real time the second plane crash into the tower. I got goosebumps right now just thinking about it, y'all. It was an, I'd never felt, I was emotionally connected with it. We experienced it, what the nation went through, um, what the, the spiritual challenges that people were facing, the the, the, the loss of life, the reality of that tragedy weighs on us. You guys didn't have that experience of it. You guys weren't born yet. But you guys do know about it. You've probably heard your parents talk about it. You know it's significant. Some of you may have gone, I know Mason, my son, he went on the, the run at, um, for 9-11 this year. They did the stairs at the YMCA, right? They, they did that in memory of of what happened on September 11th. You guys remember that. You guys have learned it. So you have a connection to it, but you're not as deeply connected. Your children might only learn that it was something that took place in history a long time ago and not really be as connected. That's what's happening with Israel here. They believe what their, for, what their parents were telling them, but it's like kind of seemed like unreal to them. Yeah, like they crossed on the Red Sea, but it might have been a drought. It might not have been that deep, Right? Or it's kind, of, it's kind of sounds like it's gotten embellished a little bit. So it's real, but it kind of seems all like mythological and legend. And so because of that, Israel ended up in the situation where they continued the cycle of disobedience. The other thing is this. We also learn a couple things about God. I want to hit this real quick. Here's what we can learn about from God. First of all, we learn that God is merciful. The very first time Israel disobeys God here, God could have just wiped them out and been done with them said, I'm... I'm done. You guys were told not to worship other gods. They're not even real. I'm the only one that's real. And you're going to fall after them after I've told you. I've given you laws that says don't do this. And you're doing it anyway. He could say, nope, I'm done. Or he said, I'm going to allow you to continue to be oppressed forever by your enemies. But he doesn't do that. God is merciful. Seven times he patiently deals with their disobedience. Because he lovingly wants Israel to be made right with them. He wants Israel to connect with him and follow him. He loves them, and he's trying to provide for them. And so he shows patience and mercy time and time again, even though they keep screwing up. And you know what? He's the same with us. This, reveal, this cycle itself reveals our need for Jesus. We need to have Jesus. We need God's mercy to help us through making those same mistakes over and over and over again. And I'm not justifying 
that it's okay for us to keep making mistakes. But we need to understand God is merciful. Even in the Old Testament, people tend to send God in the Old Testament. He's a judge, wrathful God. No, he's a loving, merciful God, right? We also learn that God intentionally tests his children. Judges 2, 21, 22 says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to intentionally send these challenges to Israel to test to see if they're going to follow me or not. Not because God wanted them to fail, but because God wanted them to understand their need for him, right? They needed to know that they needed him. He wants them to mature in their relationship with him, to grow in their relationship with him. So we learn that God intentionally tests his children, okay? So you might be going, well, Tony, that's great. Israel had a bunch of problems. They couldn't get it right, okay? They go through the cycle of disobedience, and they continue to mess up, and God's a merciful God that tests his children. So what has that got to do with me? Well, have any of you guys ever heard the phrase, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it? What that's saying is, is if you don't learn from those mistakes in the past, you're going to make the same mistakes in the future, right? So here's what we need to do. We need to learn how to avoid the cycle of disobedience. We have to figure out how can we avoid being Israel and doing this seven times, eight times, a hundred times, right? What is it that I need to do as a Christian so that I cannot go through this downward spiral of compromise and end up facing a lot of challenging consequences that are completely unnecessary because I'm not choosing to follow God, okay? So I've got your three things listed up here. The first thing is, and these are your takeaway points. So if, if, if you didn't hear anything else I said today, listen to these three things, okay? Know God's instructions for how you are to live your life. You can't be obedient if you don't know what obedience is, right? We have to know what God's instructions. So what does that mean? We say it every week. It seems cliche. We got to consistently get in the word, guys. You got to read the Bible. And you know what? Not because your mom and dad are telling you. You got to read it so you know what God wants you to do, right? You got to come and worship here regularly on Sunday mornings, get, worship corporately with other believers, get in a life group, get in a deep group, put yourself in situations where you're going to grow and mature in your faith and learn more about how God wants you to live your life for him. Okay. So we have got to be able to know God's instructions for our life. Get into the word. If we can do that, that'll help us avoid the cycle of disobedience, right? Israel got kind of far away from following God. They weren't living. They weren't learning God's instructions. They weren't following them. Okay. The next one, and, and he, bear with me on this one, is value the counsel of faithful believers. Value the counsel of faithful believers. You see, Israel, I think, took for granted what their fathers were telling them about what had happened a long time ago. I think they thought it was outdated or irrelevant to them. Okay? We need to learn, if there's faithful believers that are in your life that are sharing with you their experiences, sharing with you the word of God. I'm not saying it's automatically right all the time, but I'm saying you need to listen what they have to say. And you know what? I'm talking about your parents. I'm talking about Mike and your pastors here at this church. I'm talking about your D group leader and your life group leaders. Those are people that love you 
and are sharing things with you because guess what? They've already messed up. We've already made the mistakes. And we, want, we love you guys enough. We want you to avoid making those same mistakes. We want to save you the trouble of going through the cycle of disobedience and being oppressed by your enemies, whatever that might look like today. So we as Christians do struggle with thinking our parents are outdated and irrelevant. But yeah, that's the old way of doing things, mom and dad, or Pastor Mike. That's how it used to be done. But that's not relevant to my culture today. That's not relevant to me. Let me put it to you this way in an example. Let's say in the middle of the night tonight, 3 o'clock in the morning, I wake up with severe right abdominal pain. I mean, like, I'm hurting. It wakes me up. I can't go back to sleep, but I try. I try to toss and turn a little bit, maybe get a, get a drink of water, walk around, try to go back to bed, but I can't go to sleep. Then I start to get nauseous, get, start to get sick, nauseous, and then I start vomiting, and I start running the fever, and I go, Stacy, my wife, I said, uh, I got to go to the hospital. Something's not right. They take me to the hospital. I get the doctors do all their evaluation. They do the MRI, CAT scan. They they do all these tests, blood work and everything. They go, Tony, you need emergency surgery. You've got appendicitis and you've got it bad. It's about to rupture. We're going to have to do surgery right now. I'm like, okay, good. God, thank you. I'm so glad you figured out. Here's what I want you to do. And I can proceed to tell the doctor exactly how I want him to do this procedure. And the doctor goes, no, we're not going to do it that way. This is how we're going to do it. I said, no, no, doc, you don't understand. Your way is irrelevant to me. Your way doesn't, isn't the way I want you to do it. This is my body. I'm going to tell you how you're going to cut on me. Would that be wise for me to do that? Why? Because what? Because he won't do it. You're right, he won't do it. But I don't have the knowledge, the expertise, or the experience to even know what I'm talking about. This guy has done a thousand of these things. He can probably cut my stomach open, tie me up, take that thing out, tie me all up with his eyes closed, and go right back to doing three or four more surgeries right after that. Because he's got the training, the knowledge, the experience, and the skill set to do it successfully. He's seen all the different potential outcomes, and he knows exactly what it needs to look like to make sure I recover appropriately. That's what wise Christians have to offer you and me. They have the experience. We need to learn from those experiences, value what they have to say, and not just say, hey, that's irrelevant. That doesn't matter. You may not be able to relate, connect, because you weren't there, but listen to what they have to say. It's important, okay? The last thing is this. Understand that God tests his people and the purpose of testing. And I know I've gone a little long, but I do need to bear, we need to focus on this just for a little bit. God tests his people. And if we understand that and why God tests us, then it helps us to be more successful in avoiding disobedience when we are testing. J.D. Greer, who's the pastor of Summit Church in Raleigh, I love to listen to his sermons. He's currently been doing a series in James. And so I've been listening to his series. And in that very first sermon of that series, it's called Here Comes Trouble. J.D. Greer says this, trials do not automatically produce good in you. Trials do not automatically produce good in you. And so our culture says, in the, in the eyes or in the, in the sound of the great theologian Katy Perry, right? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? That's what our culture says. Actually, Frederick Nietzsche is the original one that said that phrase a long time ago. But our culture basically says, hey, if you survive it, you'll be made stronger for it. But that is false, 
That's not true. Because honestly, what can happen is, J.D. Greer says this, not true. Trials can crush you. They can crush you and they can either move you forward or they can move you backward in your faith. Trials give you a pivot point for you either to choose God or choose to disobey. That's what it's like. And God wants us to choose him because we will draw closer to him. We'll mature in our faith. We'll learn to depend on him. Um, J.D. Greer goes on to say, you have to choose whether you're going to trust and hold on to God's good character and his good work in you. And that trust is not automatic. It's a choice. Okay? And we can see this is not just an Old Testament issue. This is a New Testament issue. So it does apply to us because James 1, 2 through 4, it's one of my memory verses. I love this verse. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. nothing. So what James is basically saying is this. Look, when you face trials, they're made to perfect you. They're made to make you perfect and complete so that you're lacking in nothing and you can be more like God and who he wants you to be. Okay? So if we can stay in God's word and understand what obedience looks like, if we can listen and value the counsel of wise believers in our lives, and then if we can understand how God uses trials and that there's a purpose in them, and rather than just whining and complaining and blaming everybody else, seeking him and help to understand what he wants us to get out of this, we will avoid the cycle of disobedience. And that's my challenge to you this week, is when you're challenged to follow that cycle of disobedience, if we do those three things, you can avoid that, okay? All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious God, thank you so much, Lord, for just being a loving God who's so merciful and so understanding of our failures, Lord. Lord, we know that you deserve uh, so much more from us than what you actually get, but we're so thankful that your love is not dependent on our perfection. And Father, I I just pray that you would help us to to learn from this uh, lesson in the book of Judges to understand the cycle of disobedience, to avoid that cycle in our own lives. Lord, give us the strength to be consistent in staying in your word so that we can understand what it looks like to follow you. Lord, help us to value the wise counsel of of those who have gone before us, who who are faithful believers, who have something to share with us that can strengthen us and, and encourage us in our faith. And Lord, help us to come to understand the blessing, the benefit that comes from trials and, and difficulties in our lives because we know that it strengthens us and it draws us closer to you. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we go to worship you in the next hour, that your spirit would move in a powerful way, and that we would uh, be challenged to do things differently in pursuit of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.